0: Magic Without Fears, hermetic podcast. I'm your host, Frater RC. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Who are the Rosicrucians? Berlin, March 14, 1907. A lecture by Rudolf Steiner, originally entitled Die Erkenntnis des Übersinnlichen in unserer Zeit. Few people have even remotely adequate ideas about today's subject. The Rosicrucians. Indeed, it is not even easy to say what the name means. It remains extremely vague for most people. Books tell us that the Rosicrucians are believed to be some sort of sect that flourished in the early centuries of German culture. Some say it is impossible to verify that anything serious or rational ever existed behind the fraud associated with the name. On the other hand, some learned books do offer a variety of information. If what is written about Rosicrucianism is true, one could only come to the conclusion that it consisted of nothing but idle boasting, pure fraud or worse. Even those who have attempted to justify it do so with a patronizing air, even though they may have found that Rosicrucianism is able to throw light on certain subjects. But what they have to say about it, for example, that it is involved with alchemy, with producing the philosopher's stone, the stone of the wise, and other alchemical feats, does not inspire much confidence. For the genuine Rosicrucians, however, these feats of transformation were only symbols for the inner moral purification of the human soul. The transformations represented ways that inner human virtues should be developed, when the Rosicrucians spoke of transforming base metals into gold, they meant that it was possible to transform base vices into the gold of human virtue. Those who maintain that the great work of the Rosicrucians should be understood symbolically are met with the argument that Rosicrucianism is therefore trivial. Such people argue that it is difficult to see the necessity of all these alchemical inventions, such as the transformation of metals, if their purpose is merely to demonstrate the obvious fact that we should be moral and change our vices into virtues. Rosicrucianism, however, involves something far more important than that. Rather than offer more historical material, I will present a factual account of Rosicrucianism. Its history need not concern us aside from the fact that Rosicrucianism has existed in the West since the 14th century, and that it goes back to the legendary figure Christian Rosenkreuz, about whom much is rumored, but history says little. The various accounts share one basic feature. This may be summarized by saying that Christian Rosenkreuz, this is the only name by which he is known, traveled the world around the end of the 15th and beginning of the 16th centuries. On his journeys through the East, he became acquainted with a book called M. Mysteriously, By means of this book, Paracelsus, the great medieval physician, mystic, and alchemist gained his knowledge, or so we are told. This account is true, but only initiates know the true nature of this book, M, and what it means to study it. Conventional knowledge about Rosicrucianism stems from two writings published at the end of the 17th century, the so-called Fama Fraternitatis, published in 1614, and the Confessio, published a year later. These texts are much disputed by scholars, however these disputes have been by no means confined to the usual kind of controversy surrounding texts. Whether the author really was Valentin Andrea, for instance, who in his later years was an ordinary normal clergyman. Scholars have also disputed whether the author intended his books to be taken seriously or as a lampoon, a ludibrium, meant to parody a certain secret brotherhood known as the Rosicrucians. These first two publications were followed by many others offering all sorts of information about Rosicrucianism. When people with no knowledge of the true background of Rosicrucianism pick up the writings of Valentin Andrea, or indeed any other Rosicrucian document, they do not find anything exceptional in them. In fact, until now, it has been impossible to gain even elementary information about this spiritual realm which still exists and has existed ever since the fourteenth century. All that has been published, written, and printed are merely fragments, surrendered into public hands by a kind of betrayal. Not only are these fragments inaccurate, but they have suffered all manner of distortions by charlatans and frauds. They have been the butt of incomprehension and sheer stupidity. Throughout its entire history, in fact, true Rosicrucianism has been passed on orally to members who have been sworn to secrecy. That is why nothing of great importance found its way into public literature. Today I will address certain basic aspects of Rosicrucianism that can now be spoken of publicly for reasons that, for now, would take me too far afield to explain. Only when they are known. Can one make any sense of what is found in writings that are for the most part exaggerated, sometimes to the point of being merely comical, and that are often fraudulent as well? Rosicrucianism is a way or method of attaining what is known as initiation. We have often discussed the nature of initiation in our circles. To be initiated means to awaken faculties that sleep in every human soul. Such faculties enable us to see into the spiritual world that exists behind our physical world. The physical world is an expression of the spiritual world of which it is a product. Initiates are those who have applied the method of initiation, a method as exacting and scientific as any applied in chemistry, physics, or other sciences. The difference is that the method of initiation is not applied to begin with, anything external but only to the human being himself or herself. We ourselves become the instrument or tool through which knowledge of the spiritual world is attained. Those who genuinely strive to attain knowledge of the spirit recognize the deep truth contained in Goethe's words. Mysterious in day's broad light, nature retains her veil despite our imprecautions and what she won't reveal to human mind or sight, levers, screws, or hammers, cannot wrench from her. that's from Faust, part one. Deep indeed are the secrets of nature, but not as impenetrable as people maintain, because they are too comfortable to exert the effort. The human spirit is certainly able to penetrate nature's secrets, not through the soul's ordinary faculties, however, but through higher ones which are attained when the soul's hidden forces have been developed through certain strictly defined methods. Those who prepare themselves incrementally will eventually reach the point where knowledge attainable only through initiation is revealed. Then, to use the language of Goethe, the great secret is revealed, the secret of what ultimately holds the world together, a revelation that is truly a fruit of initiation. It has often been explained that anyone may go through the early stages of initiation with no danger whatever, but the higher stages require the very highest conscientiousness and devotion to truth in spiritual research. When we approach the portals through which we look into very different worlds, we realize the truth of what is often emphasized, that it is dangerous to reveal the holy secrets of existence to large groups of people. However, such secrets can be revealed, but only to the extent that modern human beings are able, through inner preparation, to find their way gradually to the highest secrets of nature in the spiritual world. The movement of spiritual science is a path that guides human beings to the higher secrets. Numerous such paths exist. This does not mean, however, that the ultimate truth attainable assumes different forms. The highest truth is one, no matter where or when human beings ever lived or live. Once they reach the highest truth, it is the same for all. This truth may be compared to the view from a mountaintop, which is the same for all who reach it, regardless of whether they chose different paths to get there. When you are standing at a certain spot on the side of a mountain and see a path, you do not walk around the mountain to look for another path, The same applies to the path of higher knowledge, which must accord with a person's nature. This consideration is too often overlooked. That is, the immense differences in human nature. The inner organization of people in ancient India was different from that of people nowadays. This difference in the higher members of the human being can be seen by spiritual research, but not by conventional physiology or anatomy. Because of this, a wonderful spiritual knowledge, as well as a method for achieving initiation, the path of yoga, has been preserved right up to today. Those who are constituted like the people of ancient India may be led along this path to the summit of knowledge. For contemporary Europeans, however, it makes no more sense to seek that path than it would, when hiking a peak, to leave the path we stand on and walk to the other side of the mountain, and use a path there. The nature of modern Europeans is completely different from human beings in ancient Asia. Likewise, a few centuries before the Christian era, human nature was different from what it would become a few centuries later, and today it has changed again. Initiation, as I have said, is based on awakening certain forces in human beings, with this in mind. We must acknowledge that we must consider our individual nature when developing methods through which we become instruments for perceiving and investigating the spirit world. The great way of yoga developed by the rishis, the great spiritual teachers in ancient India, is still valid for Indians. At the beginning of the Christian era, the appropriate method was the so-called Christian Gnostic Path. But those who stand fully within today's civilizations need a different method. That is why, over the course of centuries and millennia, the great masters of wisdom who guide human evolution change the methods that lead to the summit of wisdom. The Rosicrucian method of initiation is especially appropriate for today's humanity. It meets the needs of modern conditions. Not only is it a Christian path, but it enables those who strive to recognize that the spiritual research and its achievements harmonize completely with modern culture and with the whole outlook of human beings today. For many centuries to come, Rosicrucianism will be the right method of initiation into spiritual life. When Rosicrucianism first was inaugurated, certain rules were established by its adherents, rules that are essentially still valid And because these rules are strictly observed, Rosicrucians are not recognized by outsiders. The first rule, which only recently has been slightly modified, is never to reveal that one is a Rosicrucian. Note the rules as given in the fama fraternitatis run as follows. 1. No one should take upon himself any other profession than the healing of the sick, and this to no profit. 2. No one should be obliged to wear any distinctive dress on account of the Brotherhood, but should adapt himself to the customs of the country. 3. Every year on the Day C Christmas, they should meet together at the House Spiritus Sancti, or send reason for their absence. 4. Every brother should look for a worthy person who, after his death, might succeed him. 5. The word C.R. should be their mark, seal, and character. 6. The fraternity should remain secret for one hundred years. The wisdom is fostered in narrow circles, but its fruits should be available to all humanity. That is why, until recently, Rosicrucians never divulged what enabled them to investigate nature's secrets. Nothing of the knowledge was revealed, no hint was given, theoretically or otherwise. Instead, work was done that furthered civilization, and implanted wisdom in barely noticeable ways to others. That is the first basic rule. To elaborate, it further would go beyond our subject. It is enough to say that this rule has been relaxed somewhat, but that higher Rosicrucian knowledge is not revealed. The second rule concerns conduct that may be expressed in this way. Become a real part of the culture and people to which you belong. Be a member of the class in which you find yourself. Dress normally, not in something different or conspicuous. Thus you will find that neither ambition nor selfishness motivates the Rosicrucians. Rather they strive, wherever possible, to improve aspects of the prevailing culture, all the while keeping in view the much higher aims that link them to the central Rosicrucian wisdom. The other basic rules need not concern us here, For the moment, I want to look at actual Rosicrucian training or schooling as it is practiced today and has existed for many centuries. Anything I can say about it, however, of course concerns only the elementary stages of the whole system of Rosicrucian training. I should add something, too, about this training that also applies to spiritual scientific training. It should not be undertaken without knowledgeable guidance. You will find what is to be said about this subject in my book, How to Know Higher Worlds, A Modern Path of Initiation. Preliminary Rosicrucian training involves seven stages, which need not be accomplished in the sequence enumerated here. The teacher will lay more emphasis on one point or another according to the individual and special needs of the student. Thus, it is a path of learning and inner development adapted to the particular student These are the seven steps. 1. Study, in the Rosicrucian sense of the word. 2. Acquisition of imagination knowledge. 3. Acquisition of the esoteric script. 4. Bringing rhythm into life, also described as preparing the philosopher's stone, which has nothing to do with the nonsense written about it. 5. Knowledge of the microcosm, our essential human nature. 6. Becoming one with the macrocosm, or great universe. 7. Attaining beatitude. The sequence in which the student passes through these preliminary stages of Rosicrucian training depends on the student's personality, but they must all be accomplished. What I have said about it thus far, and also what I am about to say, must be seen as a description of the ideal, do not imagine that such things can be attained from one day to the next. One can, however, at least learn the description of what may seem like a distant goal today. We can always make a beginning, provided we also realize that patience, energy, and perseverance are required. To many, the first stage, study, initially seems somewhat dry and pedantic, but in this case study has nothing to do with erudition in the usual sense. We do not need to be scholars to be initiates. Spiritual knowledge and scholarship are not closely connected. Study, in this sense, means something quite different, but absolutely essential. No true Rosicrucian teacher will guide the student to higher stages if the student has no aptitude for the requirements of this first stage. It requires the student to develop a kind of thinking that is thoroughly sensible And logical. This is necessary, otherwise students lose the ground under their feet at higher stages. Right from the beginning it must be made clear that unless all tendencies toward fantasy and illusion are overcome, it is entirely too easy to make mistakes while working to enter spiritual realms. Those inclined to see things in a fanciful, unreal light are of no use to the spiritual world. That is one reason for study. Another is that, although we are born from the astral world, the spiritual world adjacent to the physical, just as much as we are from the physical world, what we experience there is completely different from anything we see with physical sight or hear with physical ears. But one thing is the same in all three worlds, whether the physical, astral, spiritual, or devachanic, heavenly world, and that is logical thinking, precisely because it is the same in all three worlds. Such thinking can be learned in the physical world, thus providing us with a firm support when we enter the spiritual worlds. If our thoughts are like will-o'-the-wisps, so that no distinction is made between appearances and reality, then we are not qualified to ascend to higher worlds. This happens, for example, in contemporary physics, when the atom, which no one has even seen, is discussed as though it were a material reality. What I am speaking of now is not what is usually meant by thinking. Ordinary thinking combines physical facts, but here we are concerned with thinking that has become free of the senses. Today, there are educated people, including philosophers, who deny that such thinking exists. Well-known modern philosophers tell us that human beings cannot think pure thoughts, but only thoughts that reflect something physical. Such a statement merely shows that such a person is incapable of thinking pure thoughts. In fact, however, it is the height of arrogance when people maintain that something is impossible just because they cannot accomplish it themselves. On this path, we must become able to formulate thoughts that are independent of what is seen or heard physically. We must be able to find ourselves in a world of pure thought, once our attention is fully withdrawn from outer reality. In spiritual science, as well as in Rosicrucianism, this is known as self-created thinking. Those who resolve to train their thinking in this way can turn to books on occult science. They will not find thinking there that combines physical facts. They will find thoughts derived from higher worlds, thoughts that present self-sustaining continuous thinking. And since anyone can follow this thinking, the reader becomes able to rise above his or her ordinary, trivial ways of thinking. To make the elementary stages of Rosicrucianism accessible, it became necessary, in print and through lectures, to make available material that had been guarded for centuries in closed circles. What has been released in recent decades, however, are only the rudiments of an immeasurable, far-reaching universal knowledge. With time, more and more will flow out to humanity, Students train their thinking by studying this material. My books, Truth and Knowledge and Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path, A Philosophy of Freedom, are particularly suitable for those who want an even stricter training. Those two books are not written like other books. No sentence can be placed anywhere but where it is. Each of those books represents not a collection of thoughts, but a thought organism. Thought has not been added to thought but each grows organically from the one preceding, just as a growth occurs in an organism. The thoughts must develop in a similar way in the reader. In this way, readers create their own thinking with the characteristic that it is self-generating. The higher stages of Rosicrucianism cannot be attained without this kind of thinking. Nevertheless, thinking can also be trained through a study of basic occult scientific literature, The more thorough training is not absolutely necessary to accomplish the first stage of Rosicrucian training. The second stage is the acquisition of imagination or imaginal thinking. This should be attempted only when the stage of study has been completed, so that one possesses an inner foundation of knowledge and has caused one's own thoughts that follow one another through inner lawfulness. Without such a foundation it is all too easy to lose the ground under one's feet but what is meant by imaginal thinking. Note, Rudolf Steiner uses the terms imagination, inspiration, and intuition in an extraordinary sense. When we say imagination, for example, we usually mean mental picturing or fantasy. These terms here represent stages of spiritually developed capacities. Steiner discusses these terms in greater detail in the stages of higher knowledge and in Lecture 3 of Numata Sophie in a psychology of body, soul, and spirit. The term imaginal was introduced by the French scholar of Iranian theosophy, Henry Corbin, and fits Steiner's usage perfectly. Goethe, who in his poem, The Mysteries, demonstrated his profound knowledge of Rosicrucianism, hinted at what imagination thinking is in the words spoken by the chorus mysticus in the second part of Faust. All things transitory are but symbols. The knowledge that everything transitory is only a symbol was cultivated systematically wherever Rosicrucian training was pursued. Rosicrucians had to acquire the insight that recognizes something spiritual and eternal in everything. In addition to the ordinary knowledge of what they encountered on their journey through life, therefore, Rosicrucians had to acquire imagination as well. When someone meets you with a smiling face, you do not stop short at the characteristic set of his features. You see beyond the physical expression and recognize that the smile reveals that person's inner life. Likewise, you recognize tears as an expression of inner pain and sorrow. In other words, the outer expresses the inner. Through the countenance, you perceive the soul's depths. A Rosicrucian has to learn this fundamental gesture with regard to all of nature. The human face or hand gesture expresses a person's soul life. Similarly for the Rosicrucian, everything that happens in nature expresses soul and spirit. Every stone, plant, and animal, every current of air, the stars, all express soul and spirit just as shining eyes do or a wrinkled brow or tears. If you go beyond today's materialism, which interprets words of the earth spirit in Goethe's Faust as poetic fantasy, and if you recognize that it depicts reality, then you know what is meant by imagination or imaginal knowledge. In the tides of life, in the storm of action, A rolling wave, a shuttle free, Birth and the grave, an eternal sea, Weaving, flowing life, all glowing, thus, at times, humming loom, my hand prepares the garment of life that the deity wears. If these words of the earth spirit depict spiritual reality for you, you will know that you possess a deeper logic and can calmly accept being called a fool by materialists who think that it is only they who understand. Just as the human countenance expresses our soul life, so too the earth's countenance expresses the life of the earth spirit. When you begin to read in nature and it reveals its mysteries, and when various plants convey to you the earth spirit's cheer or sorrow, then you will begin to understand imagination, imaginal knowledge. Then, too, you will also see that it, this is presented in the ideal of the Holy Grail as the purest and most beautiful expression of efforts towards imaginal knowledge in both Rosicrucianism and what preceded it. Let us look for a moment, then, at the true nature of the Holy Grail. This ideal is always found in every Rosicrucian school. I will describe its form in terms of a conversation that never took place in reality, because what I will summarize could be attained only through lengthy training and development. But what I will say conveys what is seen as the quest of the Holy Grail. Observe the way a plant grows out of the earth. Its stem works upward. Its roots are sunk into the ground, pointing towards the earth's center. The opening blossom contains its reproductive organs, which bear the seeds through which the plant continues beyond itself, Darwin, the famous natural scientist, is not the first to point out that when a human being is compared to a plant, the root, not the blossom, corresponds to the human head. This was said also by esoteric Rosicrucianism. The calyx, which chastely strives toward the sun, corresponds to the reproductive organs that in human beings are oriented downward. Human beings are inverted plants. A person turns downward and covers in shame the same organs that the plant chastely turns upward to the light. To recognize that the human being is an inverted plant is basic to Rosicrucianism, as it is indeed to all esoteric knowledge. Human beings turn their reproductive organs toward the center of the earth. In the plant, they turn toward the sun. The plant's root points toward the center of the earth. Human beings lift their heads freely towards sunlit spaces. The animal occupies a position between these two. The three directions indicated by plant, animal, and human are known as the cross. The animal represents the cross beam, the plant the lower part of the vertical beam, and the human being the upper part. Plato, the great philosopher of antiquity, stated that the universal soul is crucified on the universal body. He meant that human beings represent the highest development of the universal soul, which passes through the three kingdoms of plant, animal, and human. The universal soul is crucified on the cross of the plant, animal, and human kingdoms. Plato's words are spoken completely in the sense of occult science and present a wonderful and deeply significant picture. Students in the Rosicrucian school had to bring this picture repeatedly before their minds, The plant, with its head downward and its reproductive organs stretching toward the sun's rays, the sunbeam was called the holy lance of love, which must penetrate the plant and enable its seeds to mature and grow. The student was told to contemplate the human being in relation to the plant, to compare our own substance with that of the plant. Human beings, inverted plants, have permeated their substance, their flesh, with physical desires, passions, and sensuality. The plant stretches its reproductive organs purely and chastely toward the fertilizing, sacred lance of love. Individuals reach this stage once they have completely purified all desires. In the future, when earthly evolution will have reached its height, human beings will attain this ideal. When no impure desires permeate the lower organs then human beings will become as chaste and pure as the plant is now. Such individuals will stretch a lance of spiritual love, completely spiritualized productive force, toward a calyx that opens just as that of the plant now opens to the sunbeam's holy lance of love. Thus, our development as human beings takes us through the kingdoms of nature. We purify our being until we develop productive organs that are only indicated at this point. The beginning of a future productive power will be seen once human beings create something that is sacred and noble. A force we will possess fully once our lower nature is purified. A new organ will develop then. The calyx will arise on a higher level and open to the lance of Amphortus as the plant calyx opens to the sun's spiritual lance of love. What Rosicrucian students imagined to themselves therefore represents on a lower level the great future ideal of humankind attainable when our lower nature has been purified and chastely offers itself to the spiritualized sun of the future human nature which in one sense is higher in another lower than that of the plant will then have developed within itself the innocence and purity of the plant calyx Rosicrucian students understood all of this in terms of its spiritual significance. They understood it as the mystery of the Holy Grail, humanity's highest ideal. They saw all of nature permeated and glowing with spiritual meaning. Once everything is seen in this way as symbolic of spirit, we are on the way to attaining imaginal knowledge. Color and sound separate from objects and become independent, Space becomes a world of color and sound in which spiritual beings announce their presence. The student rises from imaginal knowledge to direct knowledge of the spirit realm. This is the path of Rosicrucian students at the second stage of training. The third stage is knowledge of the esoteric script. This is not ordinary writing, but related to the secrets of nature. Let me immediately make clear how to view this. A widely used sign is the so-called vortex, which might be thought of as two intertwined number sixes. This sign is used to indicate and characterize a certain type of event that can occur both physically and spiritually. For example, a developing plant will finally produce seeds from which new plants similar to the old one can develop. To think that anything material passes from the old plant to the new is unfounded, materialistic bias and will eventually be proved wrong. What pass to the new plant are formative forces. As far as matter is concerned, the old plant dies completely. Materially, its offspring is a completely new creation. This dying and new becoming of the plant is indicated by drawing two intertwining spirals, a vortex, which is drawn so that the two spirals do not touch. Many events, both physical and spiritual, correspond to such a vortex. For example, spiritual research shows us that the transition from the ancient Atlantean culture to the first post-Atlantean culture was such a vortex. Natural science knows only the most elementary aspects of that event. Spiritual science tells us that the space between Europe and America, now the Atlantic Ocean, was filled with a continent, upon which an ancient civilization developed, a continent that was submerged by the Flood. This confirms that Plato's references to the disappearance of the island of Poseidon are based on facts. That island was part of the ancient Atlantean continent. The spiritual aspect of that ancient culture vanished, and a new culture arose. The vortex is a sign for that event, The inward-turning spiral signifies the old civilization and the outward-turning spiral the new. During the transition from the old culture to the new, the sun rose in spring in the constellation of Cancer. As you know, the sun moves forward through the course of the year. Later, it rose in early spring in the constellation of Gemini, then in Taurus, and then later still in Aries. People have always felt that what reaches them from the vault of heavens in the beams of early spring sunlight was especially beneficial. This is why people venerated the ram when the spring sun rose in the constellation of Ares. This is also the reason for legends such as the Golden Fleece. Before that, the sun rose in spring in the constellation of Taurus, and in ancient Egypt we find the cult of the bull Apis. But the transition from Atlantis to post-Atlantis took place under the constellation of Cancer, whose sign is the intertwining spirals, a sign which you will find depicted in calendars. There are hundreds and thousands of such signs that the student gradually learns. Such signs are not arbitrary, but enable those who understand them to immerse themselves in things and experience their essential nature directly. Studying trains the faculty of reason, Imagination trains the life of feelings, and knowledge of the esoteric script takes hold of the will. It is the path into the realm of creativity. If study brings knowledge and imagination brings spiritual vision, knowledge of the esoteric script brings magic. It brings direct insight into the laws of nature that lie dormant in things, their very essence. You can find many who use esoteric signs, even people like Elephis Levy. This can provide an idea of what the signs look like, but not much can be learned if one is not already familiar with them. What one finds in books on the subject is usually wrong. Such signs used to be considered sacred, at least by the initiates. If we go back far enough, we find that strict rules were imposed concerning their secrecy, incurring severe punishments when broken, to ensure they were not used for unworthy purposes. The fourth stage is known as the preparation of the philosopher's stone, the stone of the wise. What is written about this is mostly completely misleading. Often it is such exaggerated nonsense that if it were true, anyone would have a right to be scornful. What I am going to say will give you a great deal of insight into the truth of the matter. At the end of the 18th century, a notice concerning the philosopher's stone appeared in an earnest periodical. It was clear from the wording of the notice that its author had some knowledge of the matter, yet it gave the impression that he did not fully understand. The notice read, The philosopher's stone is something that all are acquainted with, Something they often handle and is found all over the world. It is just that people do not know that it is the Philosopher's Stone. It is a peculiar description of what the Philosopher's Stone was supposed to be, yet, word for word, quite correct. Consider the process of human breathing for a moment. The regulation of the breath is connected with the discovery or preparation of the Philosopher's Stone. At present, Human beings inhale oxygen, and exhale carbon dioxide. In other words, what we exhale is a compound of oxygen and carbon. We inhale oxygen, life-giving air, and exhale carbon dioxide, which is poisonous to both human and animal. If the earth were populated only by animals who breathe like human beings, they would have poisoned the air, and neither they nor humans would be able to breathe today. So how does it happen that they are still able to breathe? It is because plants absorb the carbon dioxide, retain the carbon, and give back the oxygen for human and animal to use again. Thus, a beautiful reciprocal process takes place between the breathing of humans and animals and the breathing or rather assimilation by the plant world. Consider someone who earns five dollars and spends two each day. A surplus is created. And such a person is in a different situation than someone who earns $2 but spends 5 Something like this applies to breathing. The significant point, however, is that this exchange takes place between human beings and the vegetable kingdom. The process of breathing is quite amazing. And now, a word from our sponsors. Oxygen enters the body, carbon dioxide is expelled. Carbon dioxide consists of oxygen and carbon, and the plant retains the carbon and gives a person back the oxygen. Plants that grew millions of years ago are now dug from the earth as coal. Looking at this coal, we see the carbon that was once inhaled by plants. Thus the ordinary breath just described shows how necessary the plant is to a person's life It also shows that humans accomplish only half the process when they breathe. To complete it, they need the plant, which has something humans lack for transforming carbon into oxygen. The Rosicrucians introduce a certain rhythm into breathing. The details of this can be given directly only by word of mouth. Nevertheless, certain aspects can be mentioned without going into details. Rosicrucian students receive specific instruction concerning rhythmic breathing, Such breathing is accompanied by thoughts of a special nature. The effect must be thought of as comparable to the persistent drip of water that wears away the stone. By breathing in the Rosicrucian way, even the most highly developed individual will not attain a complete transformation of inner life processes overnight. The gradual change that takes place in the human body, however, leads eventually to a specific goal. At some time in the future... Individuals will be able to transform carbon dioxide into oxygen within their own being. Consequently, what the plant now does for human beings, transforming the carbon in carbon dioxide, will be done by human beings once the effect of the changed breath has become great enough. This will take place in an organ we will then possess, about which physiology and anatomy still know nothing, but which is now developing. We will accomplish the transformation ourselves. Instead of exhaling carbon, we will use it in our own being, with what we formerly had to give over to the plant. We will build up our own body. We must consider all of this in conjunction with what was said about the Holy Grail, that the purity and chastity of the plant will pass over into human nature. Once our lower nature has reached the highest level of spirituality, it will be once again at the level of what is plant today. One day we will be able to accomplish in our own being the process that takes place in the plant. We will increasingly transform the substance of our body into the ideal of a plant body, which will bear a much higher and more spiritual consciousness. Thus, Rosicrucian students learn the alchemy that will eventually enable people to transform the fluids and substances of the human body into carbon. What the plant does today, building its body from carbon, we humans will accomplish one day. We will build a structure from carbon that will be our future body. A great mystery is therefore hidden in the rhythm of our breathing. Now you can understand the notice alluded to earlier about the Philosopher's Stone, but what will human beings learn about building up the human body in the future? We will learn to create ordinary coal which is also what diamonds consist of, and from that we will build our bodies. Human beings will then possess a higher and more comprehensive consciousness. They will be able to use the carbon from themselves, within their own being. They will from their own substance, that is, plant substance made of carbon. That is the alchemy that builds the philosopher's stone. The human body itself is the retort, transformed as described. What is alluded to as the search for the Philosopher's Stone lies hidden behind the rhythm of the breathing, but what is usually said about it is pure nonsense. The information given here has only recently reached the public from the School of the Rosicrucians. You will not find this in any book. What I have told you now represents only a small part of the fourth stage, the quest for the Philosopher's Stone. The fifth stage or knowledge of the microcosm, indicates something that Paracelsus said, which I have often mentioned, namely that if we could draw an extract from all that surrounds us, it would be like an extract of humankind. The substances and forces within us are like a miniature recapitulation of all that exists in the rest of nature. As we observe the world around us, we can say that inwardly we are a copy of the great archetype that exists outside. Consider, for example, what light has created in human beings, the eyes. Without eyes, we would not see light. The world would remain dark for us, and likewise for the animals. Those animals in Kentucky that wandered into dark caves to live, lost their ability to see. If light does not exist, we would not have eyes. The light enticed the organs of sight out of the organism. As Goethe said, the eye is created by light for the light, the ear by sound for the sound. Everything is born from the microcosm. Consequently, there is the mystery that, given certain instruction and guidance, it is possible to enter deeply into the body and investigate not only what pertains to the body, but also the spiritual realm as well, as the world of nature around us. Those who, under certain conditions, learn to immerse themselves meditatively in the inner eye with certain thoughts will learn the true nature of light. Another area of great significance is between the eyebrows, at the root of the nose. By sinking into this point meditatively, one learns of important spiritual events that took place as this part of the head was formed from the surrounding world. One learns the spiritual construction of the human being, we are completely formed and built up by spiritual beings and forces. That is why, by delving into our own form, we can learn about the beings and forces that build up our organism. Something further should be said about delving into our inner being. We should not penetrate down from the eye into the bodily nature or undertake the other exercises until after the appropriate preparation Before beginning, we must strengthen the powers of intellect and reason. This is why training our thinking is required in Rosicrucian schools. Furthermore, students must be morally strong inwardly. This is essential, otherwise we can easily stumble. As students, when we learn to sink meditatively into every part of the body, other worlds dawn in us. The deeper aspects of the Old Testament cannot be understood if it does not sink into our inner being. But this must be done according to certain directions provided by spiritual scientific training. Everything that is said here about this is derived from the spiritual world, and it can be understood fully only when we are able to discover it again within ourselves. We are born out of the macrocosm. We must rediscover its forces and laws within ourselves as microcosms. We learn about our own being not through anatomy, but by looking into our being and perceiving inwardly that the various areas give out light and sound. The soul, looking inward, discovers that each organ has a unique color and tone. People will attain direct knowledge of the macrocosm once they learn, through a Rosicrucian training, to recognize what in their own being is created from the universe. Once people recognize their inner being by sinking meditatively into the eye, or into the point on the forehead just above the nose, they will know the macrocosmic laws spiritually. Then, through their own insight, they will come to understand what it is that an inspired genius describes in the Old Testament. An individual looks into the Akashic record and is able to follow humanity's evolution through millions of years. This insight can be attained through Rosicrucian instruction, which is different from the usual sort of training. Genuine self-knowledge is reached neither by aimlessly brooding within oneself, nor by believing that through introspection one's inner God will speak, as is often thought today. The power to recognize the great, universal self is attained through immersion within the organs. True, the call, know thyself, has sounded throughout the ages, But it is equally true that the higher self cannot be found within one's own being. As Goethe pointed out, one's spirit must expand until it encompasses the world. This reality can be attained by those who patiently follow the Rosicrucian path and reach the sixth stage. Then they become one with the macrocosm. Immersion in one's inner being is not a comfortable path. Catchphrases and vague truisms are not enough. One must, in concrete reality, plunge into every being and phenomenon, and lovingly accept it all as part of oneself. This involves concrete and intimate knowledge, far removed from mere indulgence in phrases such as being in harmony with the world, or one with the universal soul, or merging with the cosmos. Such phrases are simply worthless compared to Rosicrucian training, where the goal is to strengthen and invigorate human soul forces rather than to chatter about being in tune with the infinite. Once we have attained this expansion of the self, the seventh stage is within reach. Knowledge now becomes feeling. What lives in the soul is transformed into spiritual perception. We no longer feel that we live only within ourselves. We begin to experience ourselves in all beings, a stone, a plant, an animal, and everything in which we immerse ourselves. These reveal to us their essential nature, not as words or concepts, but in our innermost feelings. We reach a point when the universal sympathy unites us with all beings. We feel with them and share in their existence. Living within all beings in this way is the seventh stage, godliness the blessed rest within all things. When human beings no longer feel confined within their skin and feel united with all other beings and participate in their existence, and when our being encompasses the whole universe so that we can say to everything, Thou art that, then we will also find meaning in the words of the Rosicrucian knowledge that Goethe expresses in his poem The Mysteries. Who added the wreath of roses to the cross? These words, however, can be spoken not only from the highest point, but from the moment we make what is expressed in the cross wreathed in roses our ideal and watchword. This is the symbol of overcoming our lower self, the self in which we merely brood. It stands for our ascension out of that lower self and into the higher self that leads us to the blissful experience of life and being in all things. As Goethe put it, And until you truly have this dying and becoming, you are but a troubled guest roaming over dark earth. Unless one grasps what it means to overcome the lower, narrow self, and what it means to rise to the higher self, it is impossible to understand the cross as symbol of dying and becoming, the wood as the withering of lower self, and the flowering roses as the becoming of higher self nor can we understand the words with which we shall close our discussion of Rosicrucianism. These words were also said by Goethe, and as a watchword they belong above the cross wreathed in seven roses, symbolizing the sevenfold human being. Quote, Those who overcome themselves are free of the forces that binds all humanity. Thanks for listening to my lecture on Rudolf Steiner. You can support more episodes at magicwithoutfears.com, get exclusive membership, or help out with a one-time donation. It all helps keep this going. And a few comments on this lecture by Steiner. Steiner, I'm not sure if we're going to all live in bodies of carbon and be able to uh, breathe as plants breathe one day. But what you have to remember about Rudolf Steiner is he had a very clairvoyant interpretation of reality and history he specifically focused on using his super senses and his clairvoyance to describe the past and future of of humanity in a very you know unique way um making many predictions as as is the one about how how we'll breathe in the future a note on breath that's actually quite interesting from my own background when i started uh doing um Hermetic breathwork or the stuff that's practiced in the Golden Dawn. I was just in grade eight, and I had come from the uh, yogi tradition, of course, growing up, and that had never been commented on by teachers at school ever. They they sort of didn't comment on yogic practices out of respect for that esteemed tradition. But when I started reading Steiner, Crowley, and other, and and getting into the hermetic stuff and working on breath work, teachers actually came out to me, these are Waldorf School anthroposophical teachers, and told me that Steiner had spoken expressly against the controlling of breath in any way and that it would offset our natural rhythms and connection with the universe. So it's really interesting to see that um, something that clearly more than one anthroposophist believes today and is telling people who ask or students when they inquire, really doesn't hold up, um, given what we just heard about Steiner talking about the fundamentals of breath. So that's an interesting incongruity between the living tradition or whatever is the scuttlebug in anthroposophical circles today contrasted to what he actually wrote. And it makes me wonder how much of the Rosicrucian and spiritual traditions that he spoke about are in sync with modern anthroposophy. Obviously, because of his love of Physical sciences and hard sciences, anthroposophists have updated what they believe, as he would himself have recommended them to do. Steiner was a tremendous lover of the physical sciences, and like the great mystics of the past or magicians like John Dee and and others, he pursued spiritual sciences as a way of pushing past the limits and margins of, of consensus science and knowledge that was known in his day. Uh, you know this lecture is from just over 110 years ago so it makes sense that that a spiritual tradition would update itself but along with that came a lot of the discarding of the spiritual practices themselves that he proposed a lot of the more occult techniques were simply discarded or seen as being only possibly practiced by the elect few so there's definitely a view that Steiner had these abilities and taught these abilities and people in his circle. He was part of uh, OTO, pre-Crowley and OTO, Mizram, Masonry, and all these other things. He uh, interacted once with Dr. Falcon on his, you know, of the Golden Dawn and, and met with many people in that arena and practiced and, and did these things. But anthroposophists sor- sort of started uh, canonizing Steiner and viewing that all of those things were possible, but only for Steiner. And anyone else who claimed them since him, especially people who, who were were students or, or lovers of the Hermetic and Rosicrucian spiritual traditions and practices, weren't possibly capable of the same thing Steiner was capable of because he was such a great being or such a great man. That is a very common tendency within the modern anthroposophical milieu, which is somewhat surprising given... Given Steiner's view that these are things we should all be doing, so they have thrown a little bit of the baby out with the bathwater—not the whole baby, just a, a leg or a, an arm, maybe the head. Who knows? Um, but that you can see that trend in the trans, translations. I, I, I went to the German for a few parts of this to uh, ch- change a few things that were to make them more accurate to the German for you, including the very last line. In the translation of the Goethe poem, I just used a different word from what uh, they used because it rhymed. Why would, if you're translating poetry and you have two words and one of them doesn't rhyme and one does, maybe you should use the one that rhymes. (laughs) But you can see this, an outline of occult science by Rudolf Steiner is now published as an outline of esoteric science. So there's this movement towards changing the translations and, and words that he used to distance themselves away from the actual practitioners of the things he promoted and believed should be practiced. Um, Most people aren't aware that he had any connection whatsoever to Hermeticism, spiritual practices within the Rosicrucian traditions, or any of that. There's a lot of devotees to Steiner who actually don't know that at all which is, again, surprising, but it's not the main thing if you're connected with their school system, which doesn't teach any anthroposophy. If you go to Walder School, you'll be hard-pressed to find... You'd know, you have to ask them, and it's not built into the curriculum in the way that you might think it would be, like (laughs) some sort of Hogwarts thing. It isn't. It it can be like that if you're into those things because you're in a healthy environment to ask questions and, and be directed to resources, but no, of course, you're still busy playing dodgeball and learning math and French and German and Latin and all the basic stuff that you do in in grade school and high school or whatever so uh yeah thanks for listening and I'll do the next Rosicrucian lecture he has on Rosicrucian practice sometime soon because I do love reading Rudolf Steiner and I always find tidbits like that last bit where he's talking about us knowing the macrocosm through the microcosm because we come from the macrocosm and we have to see ourselves as connected to every plant root. It's Like that's something that I, that speaks very profoundly to me. If we, if we did view ourselves as more wholly or innately connected to the same materia as the entire universe, then we might treat our environment a little bit better as well as the people in the environment who share it with us. So that would be the great teachings I think that are shine through in Steiner and the, uh, but the stuff about the Rosicrucian tradition as he sees it clairvoyantly is very interesting to me as well. Have a wonderful day. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, golden dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information, to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk medicscienceenterprises.co.uk